This is the 966 episode 42, Richard Mumtaz. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. We've got a really terrific show today. (laughs) Uh, We will be welcoming on shortly the great John Alterman from CSIS, who recently visited Riyadh, uh, has a great podcast out called Babel expert in the space, wonderful discussion. Looking forward to getting that, getting to that soon. We're going to be revisiting the subject of hydrogen here shortly as well. Talking about the changes to the program formerly known as the King Abdullah Scholarship Program. Uh, so we've got a lot going on today. Uh, before we get started, a reminder to everybody, we've got so much great content coming out as we ramp up this production. Um, you can find it all on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Drop us a review, please. A five-star review would be especially helpful uh, as that just helps us a lot. Uh, Richard, what's your one big thing this week? Uh, before we get there, yes, I'm excited about John. John John brings a lot of insight and uh, thinks clearly, speaks clearly. It's a, it's a refreshing change to so much about the DC experience. I also want to add our previous, last week was a busy week. We did two episodes. But they're notable, I think, because there's something we want to do on a regular basis, which is to feature young Saudis in important positions in the kingdom and people, you know, young Saudis who are actively involved in in the transformation ongoing in the kingdom. And uh, these discussions with Muhammad al-Haji and Fatima al-Haman, terrific. I recommend them to you. Please do go find and spend some time with them. They are representative of a whole cadre of, of of Saudi men and women who are doing amazing things, really impressive things. Mm-hmm. Um, my one big thing. Uh, so as I mentioned yesterday, Lucian, I went down a wormhole on hydrogen. We have a big thing coming up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my apologies. I don't recommend it. So the trigger for my wormhole adventure was the quoted I added to our uh, the Sustig Review Daily Newsletter this Tuesday. I don't know if you recall it, but it was from an essay Muhammad by Muhammad Khalid al-Yahya in the national interest entitled, quote, what Saudi Arabia wants from America. Al-Yahya is the former editor-in-chief of Arabia English newspaper. And, and the piece discussed Saudi frustration, disappointment with recent US foreign policy towards the region. The quote I pulled wondered why, uh, if the Biden administration was interested in clean energy, uh, why the US wasn't invested in Neom which has enormous clean energy, energy ambitions. All right, so it was part and parcel of a, of a piece that talked about you know, the, the larger US-Saudi relationship. Anyway, sort of walked away from it and looked at it and said, hey, you know, it soon dawned on me that that is incorrect. We are invested in NEOM and specifically clean energy. Air Products, a US company with 17,000 employees and operations in 30 countries is at the heart of NEOM's green hydrogen play. The project is called Helios, and it's a $5 billion project, including air products and Aqua Power International. They plan, they plan to begin marketing green hydrogen by 2026. Now, this is actually the preferred American way, you know, let the private sector take the lead. But uh, sort of inspired by my hasty and incorrect inclusion of that quote, I thought I should look into what in fact, the U.S. has to offer on clean energy for Saudi Arabia, specifically green hydrogen and blue hydrogen. So, and believe me, this was a choice of many, many directions to go. But, you know, this, I found this interesting. So on green hydrogen, Lucian, did you know that last June, the U.S. Department of Energy launched the hydrogen earth shot? I did not know that. 
like the moonshot, but for hydrogen. Exactly. Mm. Well, well, you were all over that. And, and, but it seeks to reduce the cost of clean hydrogen by 80% to $1 per one kilogram in one decade. So one, one, one hmm. is that, uh, that moonshot, that earth shot, hydrogen earth shot. It has uh, 9.5 billion to spend on research and technologies, you know, interesting technologies. And just last month invested 500 million in a massive green hydrogen project in Utah. Currently, the U.S. is the world's second biggest producer and consumer of hydrogen, accounting for 13% of global demand. All right, that's green hydrogen. Um, blue hydrogen, and specifically the key to blue hydrogen uh, is, is uh, carbon capture use and storage. And carbon, as we know, CCUS uh, or CCUS, however you want to term it, is a huge feature of Saudi Arabia's decarbonization, decarbonization plants. And North America, mostly U.S., accounts for approximately 50% of active CCUS projects. Most of and of the 29 carbon capture and storage facilities in the world, 16 are in North America. Again, mostly in the U.S. And 80 of the 141 CCS facilities in development globally are in North America. Again, predominantly in the United States. So American dominance in CCS is partly due to the explosion of natural gas production and specifically enhanced oil recovery techniques, i.e. shale. What particular $100 billion Saudi natural gas project might this apply to? Uh, and we're talking about Jafura, which is an extra deep seawater shale oil play expected to come online in 2024. It's projected to reach 2 billion standard cubic feet per, uh, produce 2 billion standard cubic feet uh, per day by 2025. It will use CCS technology and offtake to produce blue hydrogen. To date, 10 billion in engineering, procurement, and construction projects, contracts have been awarded to 16 undisclosed, undisclosed domestic and international companies. I'm pretty confident U.S. companies are competitive here and involved in that. One of those 16, because we have, you know, the world-leading technology on that and tremendous experience. All this to say that when the U.S. and Saudi Arabia find a better equilibrium in terms of its relationship, I would hope that it will involve great U.S. support and interest in the kingdom's energy transition goals. When that time comes, American companies are extremely well prepared to help. And as I said, specifically in, in green hydrogen and blue hydrogen. So there's where I ended with the wormhole. I could have gone a million different ways, but it was encouraging to me. As I said, U.S. likes to lead with private sector and 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 have them involved. Uh, that certainly there's a, there's a, there's significant competence in the U.S. in these sectors that uh, can be helpful to Saudi Arabia. What's really interesting about this, and that was that was really good. I, I we talked we did talk yesterday about this, and I wasn't sure where you were going to come out on it. But this sort of makes me my first reaction to this is it, it sort of reminds me how when reporters like so imagine like a an NFL team or a professional sports team, there's drama with the owner or there's drama with top man, top level management and reporters end up asking the highest paid players about the drama in the, uh, you know, in the executive suite with the owner, or the top managers, and the players always look at the reporter saying, I'm not here to talk about the drama between the, I'm here to play baseball or football. I'm focused on what we're doing, like what my job is. And it sort of reminds me of the U.S.-Saudi relationship in that way. There is sort of drama at the highest level, political drama. And yet these U.S. companies are still leaning into Saudi Arabia. Air Products was a great example. Um, 
and 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 Richard, throughout all of these conversations we've had on the nine six six, so many so far, you sort of get the sense that on the ground there is a connection between the B two B community, the business community, and what what it's just really interesting that there's all this noise above their heads and they're saying, well, that's, you know, there's noise one way and there's noise another way. But for us, we're really just focused on making the most money here, making the right investment in Saudi Arabia or vice versa. These are things, you know, or in the defense space, U.S. Saudi defense cooperation. I saw that a group of Saudi uh, servicemen just toured a U.S. base last mm-hmm. week. Um, you know, this is the type of stuff that doesn't make the you know top headline, but is still going on. So, um, I don't know if that added much to your conversation, which was really no, good, but um, it's just really I, interesting. I think it's a good point. I think it's an accurate point. And it's something that actually the embassy, Saudi embassy, uh, sort of reiterated recently. And when all the, and they had to go out, they went out and said, you know, no, the, the, the relationship is good. Their, their institutional connections run deep and wide. And they're both uh, government to government, but, you know, defense and private sector, these are the sinews of the relationship. And, and, uh, and that's one reason I looked at this, that, you know, there's every reason to think that if an you know, energy consulting firm, Wood McKenzie, has stated that the 2020s is likely to be the decade of hydrogen, if that's the case, and if, as we know, Saudi Arabia is moving ahead aggressively with green hydrogen play in the, in the, in the West and Neom and a, and a blue hydrogen play in the East in uh, Jafura, uh, the U.S. can be construct the U.S. private sector, U.S. business can be constructively involved and helpful in this this transition. Yeah, very interesting. You have a good in, uh, one big thing. What is that? It's weird because I, it is actually related to yours in that way. One of the things we t- <laughs> do talk about most on the nine six six, the program formerly known as the King Abdullah Scholarship Program or CASP. Uh, even though CASP never really took off as an acronym for the program. Um, It has a new refreshed structure and mandate, which I'll talk about in a second. But first, the reason why we talk about it so much is that so many of our friends and colleagues have either taken part of it, uh, taken part in it or benefit uh, benefited it, benefited from it in some way. Wow, I can't talk today. Um, <laughs> it's really an incredible story. And and so I was looking at the changes in the refreshed structure and mandate to this program. And I said, well, let's get to the history of this a little bit. Um, how did it start? And King Abdullah wasn't the first Saudi king to, under his patronage, enable Saudi students to be educated abroad. SACOM was founded in 1951 to oversee the cultural and educational needs of the Saudi Arabian students. 1951. Um, since then, the kingdom Remarkable. has paid for their youth to be educated abroad, but it was the late King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia, Richard, as we know well, who completely transformed and invigorated this program. Before King Abdullah took over or, or reinvigorated it, in 2005, there were less than 5,000 Saudis studying in the United States. Of course, 9-11 had a little bit of an impact on that. Um, but King Abdullah really saw the long-term generational value in drastically increasing the program. We're talking about eventually reaching over 100,000 Saudi students in the USA uh, each year, and as much as double uh, double that globally. By 2019, it had de- decreased a little bit. There were 60,000 Saudi Arabians studying in the U.S., 40,000 on scholarship. Um, when we talk about scholarship, we're talking about full tuition, health insurance, and a monthly stipend. Um, at the same time, um, Saudi Arabia started scaling it back, and that's sort of what they've done. Um, just in the last two weeks, and, and Richard, you mentioned this, we've had we had two incredible guests on the program discussing sort of their career trajectory and, and what they're doing. Both of, both were actually with the Ministry of Health. But one thing that we're just 
infinitely interested is uh, in is their experience of studying in the United States, coming here, knowing, you know, very little English, spending 15 years here, um, becoming part of the culture here, making friends and then bringing those values back um, and, and obviously bringing their values here. here. Uh, the program's effects are still really being felt, as you and I both know. Um, but uh, yeah, so the, the program is now being turbocharged uh, again, but in a different way. If you look at it, it's adapting to a changing Saudi Arabia, one that already has many Saudis who have studied abroad and returned home, literally hundreds of thousands of Saudis. Um, the program sort of reflects the fact that Saudi Arabia is teaching English earlier and earlier to its students locally. This was specifically mentioned uh, for the new updated program as something that Saudis wanted to not send students abroad for English anymore. Uh, the program um, sort of focuses on paying for Saudis to get educated in areas that provide more specific value and needs to Saudi society specifically. Um, so here's what we know. This is from ICEF.com, a company that connects the international education industry with, um, with each other. The Refresh program will send 70,000 Saudi students abroad to top-ranked universities and training institutes by 2030. That's globally. They'll go uh, not to just any schools, but to 200 foreign-approved institutions. So not, um, as uh, we discussed, not the middle of Indi uh, Indiana necessarily, but uh, top mm -hmm. schools. And so there are four paths that it's now focusing on. The Pioneer's Path, designed to send students uh, to bachelor's and master's programs in all fields at the world's top 30 education uh, institutions. The Provider's Path. Uh, send students into bachelor's, master's, and training programs with a clear relationship with specific labor market needs. Uh, the research and de development path, uh, PhD level students, and the promising path is meant to stream students into specific fields such as manufacturing, uh, tourism, um, and et cetera. So really the program is just to sort of kind of sum it up. The program is now getting more focused. It's more focused on providing Saudis a way to go to the U.S. or go abroad study what they need to know and what they need to know as that improves or affects the Saudi economy. So just interesting changes here. So a program we followed closely um, and, you know, still still very, very um, ambitious in its own way. 70,000 students abroad paid for is not going to be cheap. No. Uh, and and I, I think according to Zawi, right now, there are 53,000 young Saudi men and women who are pursuing higher studies under the King's Foreign Scholarship Program in as many 56 countries. I think this is, as you say, this is a refinement of that King Abdullah Scholarship Program, which I think officially was sort of brought to an end in 2016. And that was a, a high point in terms of numbers, I think close to 100,000 students in, in, Saudi, in Saudi students in the U.S., um, this is, uh, I think that's a good, I think it's really a, a good uh, overview you provided and gave us a sense of how long these uh, academic uh, initiatives and scholarships have been available for students to study in Saudi Arabia. And I don't think it's impossible really to convey or understand, fully understand the impact of, of these young Saudis coming back to Saudi Arabia, having studied in the U.S. or even the West. And, uh, you know, how it's changing. This is the sort of the epitome of soft power mm -hmm. in terms of the U.S. Uh, and it makes perfect sense for Saudi Arabia to, to begin to, to narrow this and refine it and specifically uh, identify needs in terms of its economy uh, and, and the larger society as a whole. 
you know, really interesting. I, 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 one of the things we should take heart in is that uh, traditionally students really prefer English speaking countries. So the, the vast majority of, of scholarships go to students studying in the US, UK, Australia. Um, this one of the one of the promising path, for example, which is meant to stream students in specific fields such as manufacturing, tourism, bachelor's, master's and training, quote unquote, training programs located in such countries as South Korea, Japan and Germany. I love that. That's sort of like it's not vocational per se, but it's a very specific understanding um, of, of things that are needed. Who is it? Uh, Dave DeRoche, who constantly, you know, we've had a, had him as a guest on 966 twice. And he, he makes a distinction when he talks about developing an industry. He makes a distinction between, um, uh, you know, strategic thinking and, and actually having engineers and craftsmen on the ground who can execute a plan. Mm-hmm. And how there's always a, a dearth of these. Uh, there has been a dearth of these in Saudi Arabia. This promising path, you know, might might you know set in, tar- in, in train a whole ser- you know whole generation of young Saudis who are really capable at at uh, specific specific you know fabrication and and manufacturer skills that would enable you know the the Lucid plant at King Abdullah Economic City to to really thrive. Uh, or any number of other things. So they're they're trying to hit all the, again, that's promising path is 104. Uh, and, and they're trying to hit all the needs of a growing economy. And they're trying to do it uh, by really targeting top educational institutions globally. We always, I mean, Vision 2030 is like the theme. I mean, we talk about it all the time, but King Abdullah really had quite a vision as well. It was a very broad stroke that he painted with his scholarship program to send so many children, um, young adults over to the US to get educated in English and then uh, get a degree and spend time there. It's really, it really is amazing. That took a lot of vision to have a program that didn't have an end, that didn't have one specific goal, but was actually just a turning of the cargo ship as we discussed. I mean, Vision 2030 is very similar in that way. It is a big, big change to what's happening and it takes time and it takes um, setting goals that are really far ahead that people say, you know, maybe can't be done or are impossible or difficult and just doing it. And and it, it's an amazing legacy that King Abdullah has left with this program. And I mean, I'm appreciative of it because uh, I have many friends that participated in it and that I would not have met without, you know, the program. Same with you, Richard, as well. Just and so it's cool, and it's actually kind of cool to see the program mature a little bit. I mean, it's better for Saudi Arabia for it to be this way. It's a natural evolution, yeah. When you consider that, you know, that that program came out in two thousand five. King Abdullah met with with George Bush down in Waco, and and this was in the depths of uh, really, really uh, anxious and and contentious relationship post nine eleven relationship. This is just four years after that. It's a brilliant response. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a subversive sort of approach to rewiring people's uh, understandings of each other, and and these these families that were in the U.S. Saudi families, students and their dependents, you know, they made an impression and they changed people's minds here. And obviously, I think their experience here was largely positive, so they went back with a good impression of the U.S. So uh, you know, it it makes a lot of sense if if the origins of it were the nine post nine eleven situation, um, that it be refined and continue to evolve now to meet uh, Vision twenty thirty priorities. So it, it it's it seems to be in a healthy place. 
And it makes for really good stories. And we always ask, as I mentioned, um, our guests who were on this program, you know, what was it like? You show up to the U.S., you didn't know English very well. Um, you arrived in Indiana. I mean, that's just a really interesting <laughs> That's a really interesting first page of a book. So it's um, <laughs> it's always interesting to, to hear about that. And that's what we're doing with the 966 really is we're giving we're creating a forum where people can talk and sort of experience this stuff that is just not really at the top, the highest level. But, you know, is very interesting, at least to us. So um, and we'd be doing this anyway, Richard, we're just recording it. So <laughs> um, let's now get to our interview with uh, Dr. John Alterman from CSIS. He's fantastic. You guys will really enjoy this. Looking forward to it. Joining us today on the 966, Dr. John Alterman, Senior Vice President at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. He also holds a Brzezinski Chair in Global Security and is Director of the Middle East Program at CSIS. We could fill the entire time slot today discussing John's accomplishments to date, but his latest True. is a fantastic podcast miniseries called Babel, Translating the Middle East. And in the latest episode of Babel, John talks with Tim Lenderking, U.S. Special Envoy for Yemen. Just an incredible interview and discussion, really a newsmaking discussion. Um, John, thank you so much for joining us on the 966. Lucien, thanks for having me. John, as any of our six regular listeners will attest, I'm a big fan of yours. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I've done a couple of segments on, on articles you've written uh, just simply because they, you know, this, this, what I found, and you've been senior vice president, you've been involved with CSIS for 19 years. And so I've had an opportunity to sort of watch you and even work with you and CSIS on projects and that sort of thing. But you bring a, you bring a wealth of experience to, to foreign policy matters. You think concisely, you communicate clearly, and also you are regularly ahead of the curve on identifying key issues. And so if you will, I want to, I want to lay the groundwork and establish your credentials here real quickly and also establish the theme of this show. Uh, Flattery is that the theme? <laughs> well, we will, we'll we'll get past that, Richard. But, I, I have to say, I, lo I love your your news briefs every day, and I read them every day. I click on links every day, and I think what you guys are doing uh, really is helpful for those of us who are totally overwhelmed with information. And the reality is, we can't do what we do without you doing what you do, and helping highlight trends and highlight things we might have missed. Uh, and I think the service that you provide to, to all of the, your subscribers is, is really remarkable as well. So thank you. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. We're recording, right? Lucia? Yeah, we're recording. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, <laughs> thank we, you, John. We'll use that one again. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, John. That's, a, that's high praise from someone from as informed as you are. So, so let me get back to flattering, flattering, flattering you. Uh, on October 20th, 21, you wrote an article for CSIS entitled The Puzzle of U.S.-Saudi Ties. Quote, and I'm going to take a little bit. By most accounts, the Biden administration is pleased with the results of its policy towards Saudi Arabia, dot, dot, dot. Saudis seem less satisfied, though. They feel the Biden team has pocketed their efforts at partnership and has given little in return. They also express wonderment that the kingdom is undergoing a deeper transformation in economics and society than any in the country's history, and it is happening at a breakneck speed. Yet, their closest and most important partner neither notices or cares. All right, so let me fast forward. Roughly five months later, on March 3rd, The Atlantic publishes an interview with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Famously, or infam infamously, depending on your point of view, MBS responded to the question, what do you want Joe Biden to know about you that he might not know? And we all know that uh, MBS simply said, simply, I don't care. So that was the money quote everyone saw it. The, literally, the next sentence he utters is, 
quote, Saudi is not a small country. It's a G20 country growing fast. So where is the potential in the world today? It's in Saudi Arabia. And if you want to miss it, I believe other people in the East are going to be super happy to see. Basically affirming exactly what Mr. Alterman shared five months previously. All right, one more example, and then we'll move on to the actual discussion. Uh, so let's fast forward to February 21, 20, uh, February 21 this year. Mr. Alterman, I like you. I think it doesn't lend, you know, gravitas when I refer to him in the third person, Mr. Alterman. Um, Mr. Alterman, my, writes, my mother always liked Dr. Alterman, but you can do whatever you want. <laughs> That's true. Dr. Alterman, I was, formal sorry. titles, informal discussion. <laughs> you know, flattering was only so far. <laughs> Dr. Alterman writes an article published by The Hill entitled When Our Middle East Friends Talk, They Talk About Hedging. He notes that, quote, in a recent conversation with a senior Israeli official, I asked what strategic insights he had gained from discussions with his Emirati counterparts. After all, Emiratis have spent decades traveling easily throughout the region, while Israeli discussions with neighbors have often been secret, security-focused, and slightly distrustful. His answer surprised me. He said the Emiratis told him to hedge. Perhaps even more surprising, he suggested that Israel was taking the advice to heart. So three days later, on February 24th, Russia invades Ukraine. And I did a personal survey, John, and found that quote, hedging used to describe UAE and Israeli foreign policy after the Russian invasion appeared in global media sources 6.7 billion times, <laughs> which, which leads me to the theme of this episode. And I had our crack graphics team. I'm sure you have a crack graphics team over CIS to put something together. So this is the theme <laughs> of our episode. <laughs> Richard, you uh, spent a lot of time on that. I can oh, see. I did. I did. My only regret is my daughter's off at school. If she were here, this would really be nice. There'd she be has, some flowers and stuff on it. Yeah. Has, <laughs> word art. Word art. Right. So, so anyway, this is the way we're coming from. We're speaking with a savant, Dr. John Alterman. Um, and we're going to put all that aside, although the theme is set. Look, but, but Richard, to be, to be honest and not to preempt this, if you listen... There you go. You just have to listen. And I think there's so many people who either aren't listening or they are so tied to what they think and their preconceived notions that they don't hear things. And it seems to me that, that it's partly a curiosity. It's partly an ability to summon some empathy. And it's partly a, a, a just listening what people listening to what people are saying. Uh, I don't think uh, that I'm smarter than anybody. I don't think that I have uh, this remarkably different set of sources from other people. I'm sure there are people, and I know there are people with better sources than I have. But I, th I think when you approach the Middle East, not from a sense of certainty, but from a sense of humility and a sense that, that people have agency over their own lives and what their countries do and what they want to do and what they want from the world, I think it just leads you to some pretty interesting places that are a lot more interesting than a lot of the Middle East discussion that goes on in Washington. Um, so I, 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 I mean, it's lovely that, that, that you're, you're so happy with this stuff I do, but, but honestly, I think most of what I do is trying to highlight the interesting things that other people do. 
and I, I wouldn't uh, dream of arguing with that. The only thing I would point out is if it were so simple, we'd see more of it. Uh, and I, I certainly agree with your, 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 it was, you know, indisputable, you know, the ability to listen is a real gift and something you've acquired. And let's talk about that. You, CSIS, uh, of which you obviously, I mean, you, you, you know, hold a uh, Brzezinski chair, you've been program director, you started there in November 2002, but you're beyond that. You, in 2014, you were named senior vice president. So you're, you're now involved with the whole operation of CSIS you know, and all aspects of it. And it, it's, an, in our opinion, it's an extraordinary organization. And I, and I want to note for our listeners and our viewers that in terms of global think tank rankings, sort of the, the benchmark of, of one is, is one that's been done by the University of Pennsylvania since 2008. In the last ranking, CSIS was ranked number four in top think tanks worldwide. So you guys are doing extraordinary work. Just a, just a brief, before we get into policy stuff, what, what are the challenges you, in over 19 years of CSIS and, and actually since 2014 being part of growing CSIS and, and sustaining it? What are the challenges you see as, as part of being, uh, you know, running a think tank? Well, look, I mean, there, there are any number of, of challenges. One is how do you get anybody's attention? How do you sustain anybody's attention in an increasingly crowded information space? Um, how do you stay relevant? How do you get ahead of the curve? And the way CSS has done it, and frankly, this is about our, our president and CEO, John Hamry, it's not about me. He has given tremendous autonomy to individual program directors to do what they think is meaningful for the audiences they've identified as being most important to carrying on CSS's work. Um, you know, I have a bunch of friends who've worked at the RAND Corporation for many years, and RAND has a very vigorous quality assurance process. And it can take a really long time to get a RAND report out. CS CSIS's quality assurance process is delegated to the people writing the report, to the people doing the work, to the program directors who are responsible to the donors for the work that gets done. And you could argue, well, that's a total conflict of interest. That wouldn't everybody have an incentive to just get everything out there and have it wrong? And the answer is no. The incentive is you hire people who want to have it right, and you trust them to do the important work, and you trust them to do it well, and you trust them to vet what they do with the right people. And then you can get things out there without a, a huge number of hurdles, without the delays, without the transaction costs of having a, a really cumbersome process. Um, th there might be people who argue that, that the CSS process is deeply flawed because it doesn't have quality assurance and delegates quality assurance to, or it doesn't have centralized quality assurance and delegates it to program directors. But I would argue that it's created a more responsive culture, a quicker culture, a more anticipatory culture uh, because you hire good people. And I think the, I mean, look, the quality of people at CSS has increased tremendously since I joined. And I'm delighted uh, to, 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 to be surrounded by so many really spectacular folks in their own fields. Uh, and the, the, the ethos of CSS is get amazing people and then don't constrain them. We don't have a travel approval process. We, I mean, all these things that, that sort of make government hard and, and make 
academia frustrating. They don't really exist at CSIS. You do have to, to, to pay attention to fundraising. Um, but the return is you can do what you think is really meaningful and you can, and nobody tells you what to write. Nobody tells you what not to write. In 19 years at CSIS, my boss once said, you know, I, I read that piece you wrote on, on the Bush administration. I had to grab my heart a little bit, <laughs> which isn't really a don't do it anymore. Certainly wasn't specific. And that's it for 19 years of steering what I say. And as you know, I've said a whole bunch in 19 years, some of which was smarter than other stuff. <laughs> well, that's but, 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 nobody, but nobody at CSS has said, that, that, that person's a donor. You can't talk about them that way. Or, or you know, we have trustees who, who are supportive of that. So don't go there. That's not what happens here. What happens here is, you know, John Hamry told me at one point he was testifying on Capitol Hill. And as he was sitting and waiting to testify, he looked at his phone. And he saw that, that Tony Cordesman had just released a paper completely criticizing the position he was about to take on Capitol Hill. <laughs> and that's the nature of CSIS, right? It is, it is really, it is genuinely a place where program directors have complete freedom to pursue excellence. And when you hire the right program directors and you empower them to, to do interesting things and look at interesting questions, they come up with interesting stuff. And I think that's the secret sauce of CSS. I mean, it's not for everybody. And some people want more structure and some people want to do less fundraising. But I think that the challenge is if you're doing less fundraising, then you're also accountable to a central administration in a much higher way. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I say, I, I total intellectual freedom. Well, it's clear there's a culture over there that's positive. And, and you, you know, in, as an observer, outside observer, there are some fusty sort of drafty um, think tanks around. But uh, CSIS has always been, in my opinion, you know, demarked by competence, a dynamism and an accessibility. And let's talk about that. You in your you in, in, in November 2019, you introduced Babel, which is your podcast translating the Middle East. And you very kindly you know, talked about our daily newsletter and, and the curation work we do. I don't know that there's a, been a Babel episode that has not been included in the, in the Sustig review. They're really, really good contributions, thoughtful contributions to the, to the, to the dialogue. <clears throat> and a matter of fact, uh, you may not recall, but when we were thinking about doing a podcast here, I, 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 I pinged you and, and asked you what was the secret. Um, and, and having I, guests different from me, honestly. <laughs> yeah, no, look, I, I you didn't I, give me that advice. Well, come on. I think I did actually. You know, I, look, I I try to model <clears throat> what I think is really interesting. So I try to have interesting people, people who I think people haven't heard from or haven't heard a lot from. Uh, sometimes I have topics that people have no idea are interesting topics. I mean, I did one. That, that you might or might not remember with the guy who introduced uh, Turkish soap operas to Arab tellers. <laughs> right? Because there are interesting issues that that reveals. I mean, it's somebody I've known for a long time. He's a very interesting guy. He's done interesting things, but it's not part of the discussion that everybody has. You know, there, there are lots of discussions in Washington that I've been listening to for, for more than 20 years that are the same discussion. 
Mm-hmm. And often with the same people saying oh, the same thing. 100%. And it seems to me that, that there are so many opportunities to find really interesting, articulate people who don't talk in a, a hopelessly academic way to only an academic audience. And you might not immediately grasp what the application is, but by the end of the episode, you should understand why it matters. Um, that that I ask questions that I think are just genuinely interesting questions and you ask them in a respectful way because the reason you have the person in the first place is because the person has interesting things to say. And you, you know enough about what the person said in other places that, that you have a sense for that. And then you ask questions you don't know the answer to because you're genuinely interested. And I, I mean, I don't, I've never studied how to do interviews. Um, I've never studied how to do radio. I've never studied how to put podcasts together. But it, it seems to me that, that, you know, I'm in this remarkably privileged position where I can talk to folks all over the world. And to my delight and sometimes surprise, people are willing to talk to me. And so what really interesting thing does that person have to say that an audience should really care about? And I I think a lot about my audience, you know, we did an audience survey, really gratified. We got more than 200 responses to our audience survey, uh, which I think had only something to do with with sending out, having a a drawing for 10 free Babel mugs that we sent out. (laughs) Well, we got 200 responses. And, you know, first, I was tremendously gratified by the response. And, and so many people liked so many aspects of the pro- even aspects of the program. I thought maybe we should change these. We got a lot of support for it. But then also seeing the kinds of people who responded, uh, which is people in government and people in academia and people in think tanks and people in journalism and people in business. And it's, it was just such a such a refreshing sense of there really is an audience for this. And, you know, they, they, they see some value in it and you create a virtual dialogue. And as we went through COVID, um, you know, it's hard to get those kinds of dialogues. You can't sit with 20 people in a room with somebody who's really interesting. And in some ways, Babel was a, was a way to pursue that, pursue those conversations. Well, unknowingly, Lucian, I think we 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 modeled ourselves on Babel. It, it again, we just jumped right in, really, with no experience. And I, I like you, have been delighted when we de- delve into the Rolodex and ask people. Uh, they've said yes, and and it's been very much the same thing. It's things we find interesting, and 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 uh, you know, we focus on Saudi Arabia in particular, and we try to try and talk to people who wouldn't necessarily have a platform. Um, and so it's it's been exciting. So let's. Now we get to the, we're, I'm going to ask you the big question. And this is, this is where we put John Alterman in charge in case of those years right here, put John Alterman in charge. Yeah. <laughs> um, my, my kids will be the first ones to tell you what a bad idea that would be, but okay. <laughs> so you just finished a monumental babble project, you know, seven episodes called, you know, titled U S power and influence in the middle East in the middle East. And I did a, you know, I did a quick survey, 23 guests. I mean, just really heavy hitters and really uh, people from across all spectrums of, of policy, academia, military, uh, business, everything, you, uh, you know, U.S. foreign. So and it, it really is a huge chunk. I mean, that's an ambitious 
program you just ran, John. I mean, and and what I want you to do now is synopsize it really quickly. What'd you find in U.S. power and influence in the Middle East? Look, I mean, there's partly a question of what should the U.S. be trying to do. And then there's no question that after 20 years of essentially fighting wars in the Middle East, people are saying we have to have a different approach. What should that different approach be? What tools do we have? What should our goals be? What's the response of others to what we're trying to do? Um, you know, so, uh, so we had an episode, as you know, that, that featured non-American voices. Mm-hmm. We had an episode that looked at, at some of the cultural issues. We had an issue at, at or cultural investments the U.S. has made, economic issues, diplomatic tools. Um, and then we had a, a wrap up with, you know, as you know, Martin Indyk and, and Mike Duran mm-hmm. um, and uh, Dahlia Dasake and Steve Walt. And I thought those were four really diverse views. Um, I think they agreed on things that, that people would be surprised about. I think you could listen to any of them and say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, but they can't all make sense because they have very different views. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I think that the nature of U.S. policy in the Middle East is hard. It's full of contradictions. It's full of tensions. Uh, it's full of incompatible goals. We have imperfect instruments. We have a dynamic situation in the region that we're trying to, to, to move in a, a more constructive direction. So we should approach it all with a sense of humility. We should not assume that, that wisdom is in any particular place. Um, but let's sort of try to think more broadly. And, and honestly, I, one of the things I really liked about the, the series was it was a really thoughtful conversation with a lot of people with a lot of very different views. And I think if you care about the issue, my hope is that everybody would say, you know, I had thought that person had nothing useful to say, but actually the person has really interesting things to say. <laughs> and, you know, we, we agree on, on these three things, but disagree on these two. And it seems to me that that's how you get smarter is you, you put yourself in these positions where you hear things that make you intellectually uncomfortable, intellectually unsettled. Say, you know, I thought I understood this really well, but maybe I have to rethink that. And I think that's what learning is. I think that's what deepening your understanding is. And, and, and we should put ourselves in the position of trying to be, be in that space a lot more than we are. Um, you know, when, when interns finish their internship with me, we have program t-shirts. Uh, and, and on the back of the, the program t-shirt, um, is a quote from the the Swiss social historian, Jacob Burkhart, that says the essence of tyranny is the denial of complexity. Mm -hmm. And I just, I love that quotation. I I first heard my old boss, uh, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, had quoted it. Uh, And the more I thought about it, the more I thought about my time in the Middle East, the more I thought about what I'm trying to do as an intellectual enterprise, the essence of tyranny is the denial of complexity. And I keep thinking, are there any exceptions to that? And frankly, I always have a hard time thinking of them. Well, let's go. Because there's something about tyrannical regimes that say, look, the whole thing is simple. The whole thing is simple. And it's not simple. And I think we, the question is, so how do you, how do you nurse 
wisdom out of the complexity. And that's, I think, what we all should be engaged in, what I'm, you know, my own modest efforts are, are trying to promote. Well, let's take two of those thoughts and, and apply them to the Gulf right now. Um, one, it seems, as you, you, know, you just went through a whole series of, of, of discussions about U.S. foreign policy over the last 20 years, it seems to me, this is first, first aspect, that as a, it's more in flux now than it has been for some time in terms of what we're going to be doing, the direction we're headed, you know, what we truly believe in and what we're able, capable of sustaining. Right? That's one part. The other is to, to take, a, you know, the essence of tyranny is a denial of complexity. One of the things our partners and long-term allies in the, in the region, specifically the UAE and Saudi Arabia, are saying is your approach to us is not nuanced enough. It's, in other words, it's, 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 it's uh, not uh, recognizing or acknowledging that the complexity of our reality and how you might engage with our reality. Is that a, is that a fair way to say this? I'm I mean, sorry, essentially saying uh, we, we, we I'm need. Sorry, I heard I heard it's not, and then the the screen froze, so I didn't. All right, so, so 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 you think I think what our partners in the UAE and Saudi Arabia in particular are saying to us is you need to update your dated uh, rules of engagement with us. And that it, the, the relationship is more complex than just simply oil for security. Um, and, and we'd like to do that, but this needs to happen. And this is why we're unhappy for any number of reasons. Um, is, that, is that accurate? It, and the two parts, our, 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 our Middle East policy is influx is up, up, up for debate. We don't know where we're headed exactly. And on our counterparts, our, our partners in the region, specifically the GCC, are not happy with how it's been and feel like it's it's not uh, it doesn't take in full and fully take into account their realities. It's not complex enough. So you know, I think there are a lot of things going on there. One of which is it's true that that our partners in the Gulf absolutely feel that that they are going through a tremendous transition, um, and the United States is either disinterested or ignorant in a lot of what's going on. Um, it's also true that I think a lot of people in the U.S. government have thought that the U.S. has paid tremendous attention, devoted tremendous energy and resources to the Middle East for decades. Uh, and there are actually more important things going on in the world. And we have to rebalance. And this is, you know, the Obama administration talked about rebalancing to Asia. And, and that's a, a slow process, which remains incomplete. But I think the military in particular thinks you can put infinite money and effort into the Middle East and you won't solve the region's problems. I think there's also, particularly in the Democratic Party, but not only the Democratic Party, um, a concern that there's a sort of moral hazard involved with, with U.S. engagement in the Middle East, that, that we encourage countries uh, to do things that are more reckless because they think the United States has its back. Uh, and I think you saw that articulated sometimes during the, the Obama administration. I think you're seeing it articulated sometimes during the Biden administration. Um, yeah, I think that, that as the, Brett McGurk, the, the, the White House Middle East coordinator, uh, I had a lot of statements over the winter 
about how the U.S. is, is right-sizing its ambitions in the Middle East. It's, it's bringing its ambitions in line with its resources. Um, and what I've told you know, senior White House officials and others uh, is I think when you say that, but you don't actually say what you care about, then people have to project what you do care about. And they sort of assume the worst, that they think that the Biden administration really has no interest in any sustained presence in the Middle East. Uh, they think that this is a bottomless pit. The U.S. is trying to get out. Uh, and then they, they think about what they should do otherwise. And, you know, I think the Israelis and the Emiratis and the Saudis are reaching out to Turkey. And that is partly a consequence of feeling that the United States is not going to be there the way they need it to be on issues like Iran and other issues. <clears throat> and Turkey's economic distress gives them an opportunity uh, to, to, to move Turkey to align with their interests because they can't count on the United States. Um, so I think there are a lot of moving pieces. I think the, 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 one of the most important insights is uh, a, a senior Indian diplomat said a couple of years ago, you know, the U.S. has been fighting and not winning in the Middle East for 20 years, and China has been winning and not fighting in the Middle East for 20 years. And I think that's, that's true from an American perspective. Uh, and the question is, so what do you do about that? And to the extent that, that the United States feels that its policy in the Middle East has been at least in part at the behest of local governments, uh, there is an instinct if we have to tell the local governments, we will not continue to, to have this military-led policy to solve all of your problems and absolve you from the need to resolve problems on your own. The flip side, of course, is that Middle Eastern governments have also been incredibly accommodating of U.S. defense requests. They've bought a lot of U.S. weapons. It's helped production lines for, for, for a lot of U.S. weapons systems. Um, that's certainly in flux. Uh, I think other aspects of the, the military relationship are in flux, and I think it's going to require some management. Uh, the, the other thing that's going on, and it's, it's, I think, an undercurrent, but it's an important one to think about. And to my mind, this is the biggest strategic issue affecting the Middle East for the next 30 years, is there's going to be an energy transition. Its impact on U.S. relations to the Middle East and the Middle East relations with the outside world and the Middle East internal conditions is not obvious. It is not going to be linear. I think you're not just going to see, well, a steady decrease in, in energy revenues and a steady increase in this or that. I think it is going to be uh, punctuated by, by instability and uncertainty. I think you're going to see a lot of different countries trying different things and having different levels of success. And as we think about what U.S. strategy should be, I think we have to think about where are we trying to go? Where do we want our partners in the region to go? What role does the U.S. have helping them get there? Uh, and what does it mean for other great power competitors who have their own interests in the Middle East, their own reliance on the Middle East, and their own trajectory for involvement 
in the Middle East. And I think that, that, you know, in many ways, if we enlarge the discussion from what do you think of what Brett McGurk did last week to where are we trying to go together? Where is the world going? How is the Middle East going to relate to the world? And what does the U.S. have to contribute to, to help things go in a direction we want to go in? Uh, I think it just gives you a much better conversation, ultimately a better relationship. There's still near-term things to do, um, and there will be near-term tensions, but I think a a broader partnership on the the larger journey is useful, and I think increasingly you see energy producers in the region acknowledging that that's going to happen and not really being sure about what to do about it. Do you feel like that discussion, uh, is there anybody carrying the torch for that in the administration? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, they, you know, they say they are, but they get overwhelmed by by the day to day. Yeah, you know, when I talk to people on the National Security Council, uh, they all want to talk about what they call B three W, Build Back Better World. But have you ever heard the phrase B three W? I mean, right? I mean, it's you know, it, it's it's they think that they are paying attention to it. But, you know, you have the war in Ukraine, you have the domestic economy. I mean, one of the problems that that the United States has is all of our problems are complex and we're dealing with a lot of them at once. And we're dealing with the whole world at once. And the Middle East is really used to the United States being totally focused on the Middle East and getting used to, to not being front and center in every conversation about global security. Uh, is sometimes frustrating uh, for Middle Eastern governments because the United States is the single most important factor in their national security. And they understand that they are an increasingly marginal, not irrelevant, but increasingly marginal factor in how the United States thinks about U.S. global security, right? China's number one. Russia had been increasingly marginal. And then with the war in Ukraine has has come front and center. You have a whole set of questions about our relationship with Europe. And then the Middle East is sort of in there with with other other parts of the world, but not in that privileged position it had, certainly after 9-11, but but, even to a great extent after the Cold War in the 90s, I would argue that energy security became one of the central organizing principles of, of U.S. foreign and security policy. Mm-hmm. So you could argue that, that there was this 30-year period, which happened to coincide with our professional careers, a 30-year period where the world really, really, really couldn't help but care a lot about the Middle East. And we're moving into a space where we're, I think the Middle East is going to have to make a case for why people should care as much as, as they should. And that's a that's a, a different kind of position than the Middle East has been for a long time. Now, you've spent a lot of time, and you're exactly right, that China, Russia, <clears throat> EU, rest of the world sort of hierarchy does exist. Just today, I mean, just yesterday, the U.S. Senate passed a, a basically essentially a China, you know, competition bill, you know, allocating, seeking to allocate billions and billions of dollars. Um, you spent a lot of time paying attention to China in the region. Um, what should what should U.S. policymakers understand about China in the region? What, what go ahead? I think, I think China is really deliberate 
in the region? I mean, I started looking at, at China Middle East issues, right? So when I first came to CSIS in 2002, one of the pieces of advice I got was want to come up with six or eight projects that you might do if you can find funding and, you know, get some traction on it. And China in the Middle East was one of them. Um, China in the Middle East in the early 2000s is totally different from China in the Middle East today. Uh, and so I, I've had the privilege of watching China's interest in the Middle East and the Middle East interest in China grow tremendously over the last 15 years. I got in on the ground floor with a lot of really impressive Chinese scholars of the Middle East who, I mean, nobody would talk, nobody's interested in what they did back in 2005, 2006, because China just wasn't that big a factor. But I couldn't see a way in which China wouldn't become a larger factor in the region. I think we, we as Americans have a problem understanding why people wouldn't want to act the way we act. So we assume that China will have the same ambitions of the United States, that the Chinese challenge is replicating what the U.S. tries to do and displacing the United States. Um, I think China looks at the United States and says, that's great. What the United States does is crazy. It's expensive. It creates enemies. It creates friction. Uh, this sort of American insistence on choosing sides that we got very used to during the Cold War isn't something China needs to do at all. And China, of course, has superb relations with Israel and Saudi Arabia and Iran. And they see that as, as a, a benefit to them, a benefit to their interests. Um, I think China is very circumspect about military investments and thinks that they can get diplomatic and economic benefits without the kinds of military commitments the U.S. has had. And it doesn't want to have a military confrontation with the United States in the Middle East. It wants to sort of be in the slipstream behind the United States, mm -hmm. let the military spend the money and make the enemies, and China can be the good cop. Uh, I think there's a question we have to think think about of, of how much do you want to incorporate China, enlist China, enmesh China in a security regime in the region, how much we want to constrain certain kinds of things that China might do. Um, and I, I, my understanding when I talk to American diplomats is, is there's sort of uncertainty about exactly what our organizing principles should be when, when China comes in with economic tools and diplomatic tools and other things. China, I certainly have heard in the last couple of years in the Gulf, has been talking a lot more about security than China ever talked about before. China initially mm. was just, we only do economics. Mm. And I remember having a conversation with a, a remarkable young Chinese diplomat in Algiers in about 2008. And he said to me, how about you do security, we do business. <laughs> and that's, I think, changing. But exactly what China wants to do, what China will want to do in the future, what China thinks its own energy transition will look like and how much it will rely in the Middle East for how long, I think it is, is a question we should be exploring and certainly one that we're exploring at CSS and some of our, our longer range work. Um, I think it's hard for me to imagine China is not going to play a significant role in the Middle East we have to think more about what we want to encourage, 
what we want to discourage and what we need to frustrate. And I think we're sort of at the early stages of thinking about some of those issues. As I said, I, I agree. I think we're in flux. And in Ukraine, is the, the invasion of Ukraine has is, is brought these paradigm flaws, these grievances, these different perceptions to the fore. And, 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 and really, I would argue that the invasion of Ukraine has, has in many ways validated the world's embrace of the Chinese attitude. I mean, the U.S. instinct with Ukraine is, is we're going to have people choose sides. You're going to choose the Russian side or you're going to choose the American side. And while you had a, 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 a lopsided vote in the General Assembly uh, in favor of, of a U.S. position, in terms of sanctions, in terms of really trying to put pressure on Russia, throughout the Middle East, even among Israel, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, countries that the United States has put tremendous energy and resources into in defending and, and insisting that, that we have to maintain rule of law and, and work against you know, external security threats and everything else because of this US-led rules-based international system that we thought the world had bought into. You see Russia move into the Ukraine, everybody says, what do you mean rules-based system? It's, you know, it's a superpower thing that's between you guys. We don't really want to choose sides. We can't choose sides. We have reason not to choose sides. And to me, the, 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 that's a huge victory for the Chinese rationale for how the world should work. And to me, also a danger sign of what might happen if U.S.-Chinese competition takes a darker turn. Is the world really going to side with the United States? Or are people who don't feel directly threatened going to say, you know, rules-based system, non-rules-based system, we don't really have a dog in this fight. I mean, there's, a, there's an Arabic expression when I was in Egypt in, in, in March. Uh, I, I was giving a talk on, on Ukraine and, and the United States and things, and the guy said, do you know the expression, la naqtalena fiha wala gamal? I said, no. He said, well, and it's hard to translate because naqta is a female camel. Right. But it's basically I don't have a dog in this fight. <laughs> it's a 1500 year old Arabic expression. I don't have a dog in this fight. But I think for the Arab world, which has. Presented itself as a close partner to the United States for decades. Where the United States has advanced this rules based system. And they say, you know. No, we don't have to use. And, you know, people have said, well, that's because the U.S. invaded Iraq in, in violation of international law, or the U.S. hasn't cared about the Palestinians. The U.S. never cares about international law. We've never taken that seriously. But that's not the way people in Washington have treated it. People in Washington have treated it as these countries want to align with us. They want to be our friends. We can count on them. And, you know, we just have to keep the, the, them from going over to China. But I don't think people are going over to China. I think the, the argument is we can be totally neutral. And that, but that's not the way the U.S. has built its understanding of the world and, and, and global security. It's been eye-opening. I think if you're an American, uh, you know, policymaker who, you know, had, you know, hues to that traditional paradigm, you're either with us or against us. And I hope it's been instructive. Uh, I, I don't know, 
One of the interesting things that uh, from the, in the region, let's look at the Gulf. Um, and I a hundred percent agree, John, it's been fascinating to watch those, you know, significant percentage of the world try and opt out. And in fact, feel like, all right, you know, the pain we're feeling from this invasion is, is, you know, as a result of sanctions, uh, you know, because everything's cost more and, and, and wheat's up and, and grains are up. And, and so, so it's a, it's a mixed bag. And I, I hope we're learning. I hope we're expanding our, well, we're evolving and updating our paradigm of, of how the world works. Although I, I often comment that, you know, the rules-based international order, absolutely, China looks at it different from the U.S., but these, these Gulf states in, partic- in particular have benefited from them, and they, 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 they should prefer in the long run, not should prefer anything, but, you know, their, their territorial integrity uh, and uh, trade ability to trade and freely globally has been enhanced by a U.S. supported, you know, rules-based international uh, system. And as I've mentioned before, you know, Kuwait would be, you know, under a Russian system, Kuwait would be the, you know, another province of Iraq. Province. Yeah. And, you know, Abu Dhabi, I mean, the, the Emirates would be Iranian. Um, you know, and, and so there, there are things to yeah, consider. But, but their argument is that, that the U.S. isn't going to stop advancing the rules-based order. Right. And, you know, I think the, the view I've heard in the Gulf is we've done our part. We've bought the weapons. We've set up bases for you. And we've paid for a lot of things on the bases. Right. We have played our part. We're paying our dues. So what's the problem? Right. Uh, and I think that the problem is that the, the U.S. has a different concept of what what a partnership with the United States should look like. Their view is when the elephants fight, the grass gets trampled. Mm-hmm. Tell us exactly what you want us to not do and we won't do it. But don't give us all this sort of free flowing, you know, just do everything with us because there are reasons to do things with China. And to add to that, by the way, practice what you preach. Um, you know, it's, it's a big issue out there. Let's talk about the region and their sense that, uh, that the U.S. is pulling back, and and this has been, you know, in Saudi Arabia in particular, the, the Abqaiq attack in 2019 was was very jarring for them. Uh, that's not the only there, incident. There's a rumor that the Saudis asked the United States not to respond to Abqaiq. I don't know if that's true or not, but I, I, I find the whole Abqaiq episode. I agree, it was a it was a, a moment of clarity. Mm-hmm. But there's also an element of obfuscation uh, that I don't quite understand about what went on at the highest levels. Well, true. Saudis don't want a, you know, a, an open war with, with Iran. I mean, right. that's what they, they would like to avoid at all costs. But setting that aside, essentially what's happened since the beginning of 2020 is diplomacy has broken out. Regional diplomacy has broken out. Everybody is reaching out to everybody else. And we see, you know, UAE and, and beginning with the, the ending the dispute with the Qatar between Saudi Arabia. But Turkey is involved. UAE is real. Obviously, the Abraham Accords. Um, this is a good thing. And I, I think the U.S. would be very supportive of this. Yeah. And, and you know, Jake Sullivan um, co-wrote an article with Dan Ben-Aim, who's now the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for the Gulf. Uh, arguing that that the U.S. had to do more statecraft and less war fighting in the Middle East, and and one of the big points of the article was was we should be thinking more about regional security frameworks, um, mm-hmm. 
And so I think the U.S. is generally supportive. Uh, you know, one of the interesting things you mentioned that the Babel miniseries on U.S. power and influence in the Middle East, I was surprised Steve Walt, who you know has a reputation for being an isolationist and everything else, said, yeah, he actually thought that, that a regional security dialogue could be useful. Uh, it's one of the things that surprised me. Um, so, you know, how, what should the U.S. do? What should the character of them be? What should the U.S. role be? Um, the, the Iraqis sponsored a dialogue last August, and President Macron was there. Uh, the story I heard from some of the Arab attendees was, what's Macron's role? We don't actually need him here. You know, we don't. So, so there's a piece of, of, you know, when the U.S. comes in, it changes the geometry of the room and it changes the attention. There are things the U.S. can do that are really constructive that don't have U.S. fingerprints all over them, don't have a visible U.S. role. Maybe the U.S. is, is playing a role in some of these, I don't know. Um, but certainly when I've spoken to people in the Biden administration, uh, you know, there is this a sense uh, that, that the region having more regional dialogues and dealing more with their issues and not having the U.S. constantly with a thumb on the scale led by, by uh, U.S. troop presence um, or U.S. troops fighting uh, is a good thing for the United States and a good thing for the region. The challenge is the region looks and says, don't you really mean Iranian hegemony in the Gulf? Isn't that what, isn't that what the logical outcome of that? And I don't think the U.S. wants Iranian hegemony in the Gulf. I don't think Iran is about to have hegemony in the Gulf. Fifth Fleet is still pretty powerful and isn't going anywhere. Um, but, but sort of what that means is still a little bit unclear. And, and the Biden team hasn't done as good a job as it might articulating what it does mean. Is it's sort of setting a floor for what the U.S. is still committed to doing in the region. It's, it's, it remains a communication problem. Yeah. Um, uh, again, uh, you wrote an article and we're not going to do it today, but I think it's a worthwhile, and, and, but I thought it went unremarked and it should have gotten more attention. And it, it was talking about, uh, you coined the term, I think, GCC consensus. And Did you I coined that? I don't know if you coined GCC, it. I, GCC never see- always operates by consensus. Well, I mean, but this is in terms of authoritarian rule. Oh, yeah. Okay. The, yeah, manner, yeah. the manner of how these regimes yeah. have evolved. Yeah. And uh, it's it's it, we'll, we'll say we'll save it for next time. But I thought it was fascinating because you're you again, it's speaking to what you just what we just discussed and you know the the sort of eureka of the Ukraine and saying hey wait a second the world looks at it differently. Same thing with type of governance and this is our you know a, a spot a particular point of view we take is you know don't you want to be like us? Well, in fact, significant percentages of the the earth don't want to be like us. And that's including the nature and type of their, their ruling regime and, and what they're not necessarily interested in liberal democracy. They're extremely interested in governance, good governance. Uh, but again, I, I feel like I, I feel like I'm hopeful from U.S. policy perspective that our learning curve have, after having been flat for a long, long time might be ascending a little bit. Is that a fair statement? Look, you know, the, the, the Bush administration approached the aftermath of 9-11 yeah. with an ambition and a belief in the possibility of remaking the Middle East in the U.S. image. Uh, and there really was a sense that there was a, a thin 
authoritarian veneer in the Middle East that the U.S. could shatter. And when you take it away, what you have is what everybody wants, which is a liberal democracy, liberal, you know, small liberal democracy, um, because everybody wants freedom and everybody, uh, if everybody wants tolerance and all those things. And, you know, that, that's, I think a lot of people in the Middle East aren't as tolerant, tolerant as Americans would like them to be. We mm-hmm. can argue about why that is. I think a lot of people look at um, the chaos of the American system and they say it's threatening. I think a lot of people look at the American system and say it's really inefficient and we don't have the time. We don't have 200 years to develop. We need to do this quickly. Uh, I think a lot of people look at, at, at aspects of American society uh, that we value and they say it's, it's, it's an attack on the family. It's an attack on um, social structures. It, it's a sort of defiance of, of any sort of moral code. Um, yeah, I think people, some people want to be like us. Some people don't want to be like us. And, and there's not an agreement on what the rules should be for how you navigate between those extremes. And, um, you know, one of the things I find really fascinating about Saudi Arabia, and, and I have to say, I don't understand it. And I want to understand it better. It feels to me like Saudi Arabia is going through a period of coerced tolerance, <laughs> which are not two words I, I think about putting together. But you go to Saudi Arabia and you see things and you know there are a lot of people who object to it, who used to be able to squash it, mm-hmm. who clearly cannot. So what's the durability of coerced tolerance and where does it head? Um and to me, this is an interesting issue. You know, there is the, uh, a sort of stereo, an oversimplification of Saudi Arabia, an oversimplification of what the leadership is trying to do, an oversimplification of where the society is going. Um, but, but to me, Saudi Arabia is a remarkable puzzle, the outcome of which I wouldn't begin to predict. But I also think you can't help but argue that the outcome is going to be important and we should pay attention to it and we should think about what constructive role we might play in, in, in having it end up in a direction we want to end up. I think that's a, that's a, a well put coerced, into- coerced tolerance. Uh, yes, we often refer to Saudi Arabia as, a, as an experiment here, you know, whose, whose results are yet to be determined. Uh, you know, fascinating discussion. I would add one more thing in terms of, and I'm hoping, I think it's implicit in what you were saying about the, how, uh, you know, the region, but also now China and much of Asia looks at, at the U.S. liberal democratic uh, approach. And that is the fundamental relationship between the individual and the community. And, you know, our, our emphasis on, uh, you know, private rights and individual rights just doesn't resonate with much of the, these populations. It's, it's, they don't put that first. They don't put that before the community. And I think well, it resonates a, with some people. It does. And the, question, does, but, and the question is, you know, is, is this sort of a, an inevitable aspect of modernity and group identity falls away inevitably? Or is there a way to be modern and to think about group identity in a, a, a different way? I would argue that the, the UAE 
is a fascinating experience experiment in trying to promote strong group identity and modernity with sort of circumscribed freedoms. I, I recall that the Arab Youth Survey uh, asked people throughout the Arab world, I think eight countries, you know, do you approve of how your government's responding to COVID-19? And the answer in the UAE was 100% approval. And so on Babel, I, I spoke to the, the, the pollster who did the, the survey. I said, don't you think that's strange? <laughs> he said, no. I said, 100%? I mean, you can't get 100% of Americans to agree the earth is flat and the sun rises in the east. <laughs> and he said, yeah, but the government's done a really good job here. You know, and, and there is in the UAE a tremendous sense of shared responsibility to support the leadership and a tremendous sense among Emiratis. As a, an Emirati friend of mine has said, you have to understand the reservoir of goodwill the government has built up. Mm -hmm. So there's a question of what are people willing to say to somebody else? What are people willing to articulate to utter that is critical? You have a tremendous group identity where people say part of being in the group is, is, is supporting the leadership. And then you have a question of, is that sustainable? And I think there are people who say, no, it's not sustainable. I wonder how sustainable it is. I think it's possibly sustainable. I wonder the circumstances under which it's sustainable. I, to me, this, this becomes a question mark rather than a source of either approval or condemnation. And I think we all have to approach it partly with a degree of, of humility, partly with a degree of wonder that societies find ways to make things work for them that aren't what we would suggest, that aren't what we think is the right thing. They think it's the right thing, or a lot of people think it's the right thing. And, and you know, ultimately, this is about their lives and mm -hmm. the lives of their children and grandchildren. Our ability to shift it in a radical way is probably constrained. Can we shift it in marginal ways? Can you plant seeds? I think there are a lot of constructive things to do. And, and you know, as we talked about in the, the cultural um, power episode of, of Babel, you know, American universities have trade, played a tremendous role. American management and, and having Arabs work in American companies has, has played a tremendous role. There are things we can do, but we don't shape these societies. We don't shape the way they work. We don't shape the way they engage with each other. And to me, that's So that's an area to learn a lot instead of just telling people what they should be thinking. That's just to wrap it up. And this has been awesome. Um, your recent interview, the last episode of Babel, Tim Lunder King, around the 18th minute, you ask about why optimism now in Yemen. And Lunder King really gives sort of a compelling answer. He sort of talks about the years-long fighting has finally come to a very fragile peace situation. And he dis discusses how fragile it is. Um, are you optimistic about what's going to happen next in Yemen? And what does that really mean, you know, for Saudi in the region? Is this a big moment? It's potentially a big moment. I think, you know, Tim was, was properly modest about how much we can control. This is ultimately going to depend on Yemenis. There was a national dialogue in Yemen that America was, the United States, U.S. officials, National Democratic Institute, really supportive of. It tried to bring Yemenis of all stripes together. It collapsed and 
that helped contribute to the, the outbreak of the Civil War um, because people felt they weren't included in that. You know, to me, it, it, it's the, the situation in Yemen is a reminder that Amer- the United States has tremendous power. Uh, American officials have the ability to marshal a whole of government approach in the U.S., and we can get other countries to line up and support. And I think the U.S. role in doing that uh, is unparalleled in the world and is is one of our real unique uh, contributions. But at the same time, when you're talking to people about not only millions or, or tens of millions of dollars that they may personally have access to, but the lives of their children and grandchildren, their necessity to think about how this plays out over years against U.S. officials who might rotate out of a job in a year or two or three. Mm-hmm. The, the U.S. ability to actually force something is constrained. Can the U.S. promote things? Can the U.S. plant seeds? Can the U.S. create things? Yeah, but, but ultimately, people's willingness to walk through the door it's good to have a door, but their willingness to walk through that door, let alone walk through the door together, ultimately depends on their assessments of their own futures and their assessments of what the outcomes are. And I think any responsible U.S. official and certainly every diplomat I've worked with in the U.S. government um, understands we can create choices. You can try to to, to stack the choices, but you can't make somebody choose a choice. The choice is up to them. And, and I think, you know, the U.S. has created an opportunity. It is fragile. The Houthis had thought they were going to take over Madib and they were going to be in the in the catbird seat to decide how all this played out. They weren't able to take over Madib. Madib is, is messy. It, it, so it's, it's an opportunity, but I think we have a long way to go. And even when we get there, you know, Yemen is a country with a lot of constraints. It's running out of water. A lot of people live in, in high elevation areas. It's expensive to get water to high elevations. You have education problems, infrastructure problems. There's not much industry. I mean, Yemen has challenges that extend beyond the civil war and predate the civil war. Uh, the prospect of having regional states playing constructive role in helping Yemen get through this is positive. But I think, you know, I think Yemen is going to be a policy problem for Yemenis, for the region and for the United States for some time to come. But we may be at a point where things could be headed in a much better direction than they've been heading for the last, the last several years. Dr. John Alterman, Senior Vice President at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. This has been very, very excellent, John. Thank you so much for joining the 966. <laughs> thanks so much. And, and thanks to your kids for staying quiet through the entire hour. <laughs> the mute button is powerful here. <laughs> Maybe you had them listen to me and they just fell asleep. <laughs> That's a secret. No, John, what a delight. You know, uh, everything I, 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 I thought it might be. Thank you for sharing your experience. And, and, and as I said, your, your constant and unremitting clarity, which really greatly appreciated. It's great to talk to you. And thanks for all that you do to, to help keep me informed and, and make me smarter. 
That was our awesome conversation with Dr. John Alterman. A reminder to all of our listeners and viewers, you can watch these things as segments on YouTube. Obviously, you can get the podcasts wherever, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. But Richard, just a tremendous discussion. Put John Alterman in charge. Yes. <laughs> that was our high-tech graphics theme of the episode. Put John Alterman in charge. Can you frame that so that we have it and we can, <laughs> <laughs> we can do it? <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Part of the 966 Museum of Collectibles. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, actually, you know, I think I'll do an NFT. Maybe we can make some money. That's a great idea. Now we're talking. We already have the 966 coin coming out. Our ICO will hit at some point. <laughs> Um, don't forget to invest, but we do have an NFT line coming out as well. <laughs> uh, Richard, let's get to yellow. What do you think? Outstanding. Yellow. in a minute. Yellow. <laughs> we, we stepped on each other. Uh, number one, Saudi Arabia launches Tawakalna Services app. The Saudi Data and Artificial Intelligence Authority has launched a new app, Tawakalna Services, to help improve the quality of life in the kingdom. It provides 140 services that cover health, education, transport, Islamic and public services, and entertainment through 40 strategic partnerships. These include rendering a driver's license, insurance documentation, passport inquiries, and requests, a digital wallet approved by government agencies, charitable donations, data correction, and information verification. You know, if you ask Saudis, they would probably say that this deserves more than just the attention given to it by a Yella discussion, because this is a absolutely life-changing, game-changing technology uh, that has been launched. Uh, it's actually a very similar to the original app, which was used during the pandemic, really proven during the pandemic. But the options under each section have increased and are now more detailed. People can also buy things like event tickets. Um, event services. I mean, it's 140 services with this app. That's amazing. It basically replaces your wallet and is on your phone. And a lot of the Saudis we've talked to, including Amr Khashoggi, has said, this is, you know, holds up his phone. This is my new wallet. This is my new passport. This is everything <laughs> to me. So really a tech forward move. It's really cool. Yeah. There are 27 million users of the Tawakana app, the original. Um, and they've, the, the SDA, uh, SDA, AIA uh, has really encouraged people to download this one and move into it full force. Uh, it's going to be interesting because, uh, you know, Absher, which was introduced in 2015 by the Ministry of Interior and, and has 160 e-services, there must be some overlap. And it'll be interesting if they, they, they end up merging this somehow or if they keep them separate. Uh, I don't know the full extent of overlap. Maybe it's not consequential, but um, I, you know the 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 Saudi government's use of e-government and e-services has been remarkable and swift and decisive. And as you mentioned, you referred to Umar and many other Saudis has been transformative into how people do business, how people go about their day. It's just and also with regard to pandemic, which is a different type of kind of app. Um, you know, manage its health issues. It's just been, uh, it's been a real added value to the, the day in the life of a Saudi. This is MBS. I mean, this is MBS through and through tech, um, streamlining things, getting rid of clutter, making it easier for Saudis to do what they want to do. You know, I mean, 
people can criticize uh, MBS and the leadership of the Saudi government until they're blue in the face. This is a absolutely meaningful deliverable for all, all Saudis. Do you know if we can get it as like Americans? Like, can I go to the app store and try to get it and sign up for it? Is it like, does it cross borders or is it just for Saudis? I think anybody who needs to do these things in Saudi Arabia can use it. Uh, there are, there are, uh, you know, identification issues, you know, if you're a citizen, for example, I mean, um, you know, passport and this sort of thing. So I don't know exactly to the extent of a non Saudi can use it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do know the Telmokana app was used in 65 countries, the original. So it, you know, it's clearly adaptable across uh, country borders and different populations. So I have to say, yes. Well, Richard, I may need the rest of the day off because I'm going to go to the app store after this and I'm going to mess around with it um, and see what I can do. I mean, this is kind of amazing that this type of tech doesn't exist in the U.S. And honestly, I don't really see it happening very soon because we have 50 states, all these different counties uh, going to the DMV, for example, where I am in uh, Maryland, still very analog. Um, yeah, I, I remember visiting my sister in Shanghai in 2016, 2017, whatever, my first exposure to WeChat, um, which is a comprehensive you know, digital uh, tool that does basically everything. And it sounds, it seems like Saudi Arabia is heading in that direction. And that's why I wonder if Absher and Tamil Khan will be merged at some point. Fascinating. Congrats to them for the launch. That's really cool. 27 million users. Uh, the population of Saudi Arabia is 31 million of uh, yeah, Saudis and residents. So all, that's not all adults. <laughs> that's, that's right. So clearly, we, you know, you know, some toddlers have Tamakana on their well, they better on their smartphone. <laughs> In this house, you will use this app. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we'll, we'll monitor your time on it. That's right. <laughs> Yellow number two, a big one, Richard. U.S. removes Saudi Arabia from IP protection concern list. The Office of the United States Trade Representative has taken the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia off its priority watch list in its annual Special 301 report after Saudi Arabia tightened up its IP enforcement procedures. This is an issue, Richard, that we have seen crop up um, for a while and uh, is really good news for Saudi Arabia and their, especially their entre- entrepreneurial ecosystem and uh, just really good news. It's been a sticking point for U.S. pharma in particular. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, it is progress. And according to the report, the 30, special 301 report, Saudi Arabia is removed from the list this year due to steps the Saudi Authority for Intellectual Property took to publish its IP enforcement procedures. Increased enforcement against counterfeit and pirated goods, which is something they've been reluctant to do because they had that, you know, look, this is domestic production. You know, we don't want to, we don't want to infringe upon it. But of course, that all, that, that, you know, discourages uh, foreign investment. So they clearly have taken it seriously that they have to enforce against counterfeit and pirated goods and, and online pirated content. So um, one of the other interesting things about that 301 report is they set up uh, the, the Saudi Authority for International Property, Intellectual Property, set up a centralized committee to coordinate IP enforcement actions across multiple authorities and train IP specialists in 76 uh, authorities to increase government compliance with IP laws. So see, I think this was the point that 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 a number of, of, you know, foreign potential foreign investors and they said foreign pharma is that, look, it's a decision you make. You either enforce it or you don't. Mm-hmm. 
and Saudi Arabia clearly has decided that it's it's uh, you know whatever gains that were were had by you know uh, you know generic knockoff production domestic production were not worth the costs and let's enforce all the all RP laws and um, and so it's nice that the USTR has recognized that and taken them off the priority watch list. It's a great point. This is not a political um, list. This is a, you know, sort of hard data list um, from the USTR. So that's, you know, it's not just, oh, we'll take you off if, you know, it helps smooth things over. It's no, this is actual progress in Saudi Arabia on this issue, which is huge. Something we've, as you mentioned, Richard and Pharma was big for a bit. Um, So very, very encouraging for them. Number three, uh, this is the funny one. Video asking Saudis not to offer census takers coffee sparks pride and hospitality. (laughs) So a public service advertisement from Saudi Arabian authorities asking residents not to invite census takers into their homes for coffee is proving a hit with the public. The video released by the Saudi General Authority for Statistics has been viewed almost 800,000 times, and this was last week or earlier in the week. Since its release, the Saudi census starts on May 10th, the first since 2010. Before that, the official census took place in 2004, 1992, and 1974. Authorities are expecting to record a big increase in population. The 2010 census recorded a population of 27,136,000 roughly, while a preliminary estimate in mid-2020 was just over 35 million uh, for current population. So I was a little off with that population estimate earlier on the app. but Well, that, it, it's interesting that, you know, so there's only been four official censuses taken, 74, 92, 2004, and 2010. So... So, you know, you could be hard to know. We don't know. So it's nice that they'll be having it, but it's also nice that if you haven't seen the video, it's worth seeing. Whoever cast the poor census taker did a beautiful job because he, he just does a great job of sort of a guy going, you know, come in, come in. And then he's like, Try, I'm trying to do my job. You know, I got X number of houses to go to and everyone's being so nice to me. But it, I think it touched a nerve in Saudi for sure because, because they recognize it. It's perfectly normal. And this is how people behave. I cannot think of a more hospitable people than Saudis. <laughs> and they are hospitable both when you're in Saudi Arabia and when they're in the United States. They are hospitable to a fault. This is why it touched a nerve and why it was so funny. Um, <laughs> but th- this is just, yeah, this is great. The video is really good. Please check it out. In fact, we'll put it on our website, sustg.com and uh, the 966podcast.com. We'll put it up there. It just It is great. It really does speak to the Saudi culture of being very welcoming and warm to people, um, which is great. <laughs> um, just thinking back about the video, it is it is really good. Um, number four, the number of Saudi universities rises to 22 in the UK Times' higher education impact rankings. Um, the number of the Saudi universities, I just read the headline twice, I'm sorry. The number of Saudi universities <laughs> jumped to 22 in the UK, higher, UK Times' higher education impact ratings in the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals for the year 2022. Three Saudi universities were included in 2019, increasing to five in 2020. In 2021, the number increased to 12, and it reached 22 universities this year. Cool. Yeah. You know, that Times Higher Education uh, report and the impact rankings is is uh, a well-known and respected service and it's the kind of metric that saudi arabia likes to look at because it often when it when it benchmarks uh, vision 2030 uh, goals and also progress it likes to find you know global metrics that are 
be reasonably stable and, and that sort of thing. A list itself is very big. I mean, it, you know, that, that the impact rankings includes uh, 1180 universities for 106 countries. And so it's not like there's not a lot, but the, I think the point that's important is how, and for Saudi Arabia's perspective is how, uh, rapidly it's gone from three Saudi universities in 2019 to 22 this year. That's a three year, three year span uh, and a significant jump. I would add, uh, and then by the way, this is, you know, these, these rankings go across a number of things. It's not your standard Ivy league uh, Oxford uh, type thing. It's, it's, for example, in the global rankings, the number one is Western Sydney university. They're looking at a whole array of metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, and but number four in the whole global ranking was King Abdul's University, which is interesting. But uh, Saudi, like I said, like you said, had 20, 22. Ten of those were in the top 400, nine more in the top 1,000, and three were in 1,000 plus. So they're not all stellar, you know, but they're making this list. And this is a metric that's very important to Saudi Arabia and it shows real progress. And as we've said before, if you don't keep score, you're not going to get better. Mm-hmm. So, you know, clearly this is a this is a benchmark that Saudi Arabia is paying attention to and has motivated these Saudi universities to become more competitive and, 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 and more uh, more eligible to be ranked in this list. Absolutely. It's good news. That is. Um, number five, number five, cash strap Pakistan gets eight billion in financial support from Saudi Arabia. According to the Economic Times, during the recent visit of Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, this is visit to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has agreed to provide Pakistan with a quote, sizable package, unquote, of around US uh, $8 billion to help the cash star of country bolster dwindling foreign exchange reserves and revive its alien economy. It was also agreed that the existing deposits of $3 billion that Saudi Arabia had bought placed previously uh, in Pakistan would be rolled over for an extended period of up to, up to June 2023, according to an official. The Saudi-Pakistani relationship is pretty deep. It's sort of like the U.S. special relationship that goes on, goes back so far. Um, Pakistan has had soldiers stationed in Saudi Arabia since the 70s. Um, they just have a very close uh, relationship with each other. And Saudi Arabia provides a lot of aid to Pakistan. Um, so this is this is definitely an interesting and important story. Yeah, I mean, it does go very deep. The ties are very strong, especially with the military. I, I, it's been a little uh, uh, chippy recently. I, mm-hmm. uh, uh, 2015, Shabazz Sharif's older brother declined basically to get involved in Yemen also declined to engage in uh, the um, take a side in the dispute with Qatar. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the same token, Imran Khan, who was just recently moved along and hopefully will stay moved along, but is, is stirring up things in Pakistan, you know, was not, the Saudis were not a great, great fan of him. So uh, hopefully Sharif can survive. He's got a coalition government, but again, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting when you, you know, the U.S. expresses so many issues with Saudi Arabia, and, and, and we've talked about, especially on the, you know, the Democrat, 30 Democrats who want to lead with humanitarian issues. But uh, you forget, if you're not paying attention to what a stabilizing role the country plays. I mean, it just doled out $5 billion to Egypt last month, and that was part of a larger $10 billion 
uh, tranche to help them deal with uh, rising uh, grain prices. Um, Eight billion to Pakistan. Uh, it just moved. You know, it just had uh, Recep Erdogan in town to meet with uh, the king and Mohammed bin Salman. I don't know if there'll be a package involved there. And Turkey doesn't have the same issues, although they have significant economic challenges right now. But uh, you know, they play they play an important you know stabilizing role in the region, uh, and this is an example of that. Saudi Foreign Minister uh, Prince Faisal bin Farhan Al Saud um, visited Pakistan last summer. Uh, just sort of a, a, an indication that relations were thawing a little bit or, or improving. Um, but yeah, no, very good points. Um, it's funny, Richard, you know so much about all this stuff. It's incredible. Um, <laughs> I love <laughs> just you unleashing know, it, you. <laughs> it, it also, you know, you know, uh, John Altman, we were we were just talking about, um, you know, on the one big thing you were just saying, you know, how, tie, how these ties run deep. Uh, same with Pakistan and Saudi Arabia. The ties run very deep, even as uh, Saudi Arabia is trying to really, uh, you know, uh, accelerate its relationship with India. It does concern Pakistan, but, you know, that's a trade and it's important trade partner for Saudi Arabia. India is. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Saudi Arabia will have to negotiate that, but they do have significant longstanding ties with Pakistan that I don't think they'll be turning their backs on anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Number six, to wrap it up today, Richard, we have a new faux sponsor on the podcast, Armani <laughs> Hotels and Resorts. Um, we'll join Lucid and Richard Miller. Is Miller. That, yeah. yeah. So we've got a watch sponsor. We've got um, a car. We have to table. talk about the Richard Miller. I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, watch. I can take or leave. But Armani, you know, Armani and, you know, Hotel and, and Taria or Lucid, Let's let's come up with a third that we'll we'll we'll, we'll generate offline because these are faux sponsors and we really need to be giving them their due credit. <laughs> Giorgio Armani has decided to launch a new hotel, the company's third in the world, uh, in the city of Daria, which is just outside of Riyadh, home to UNESCO World Heritage Site, and located near Saudi capital Riyadh. Again, my theme of not being able to read today continues. <laughs> According to Architectural Digest, overlooking Duryea's luxury shopping and hospitality district, the hotel will provide approximately 70 luxuriously appointed suites, plus two restaurants and a spa with a swimming pool, which offers a variety of wellness and relaxation experiences. <laughs> this sounds dope. <laughs> this sounds great. Um, welcome to the welcome to the podcast supporting family, Giorgio Armani. Yes, we're glad to have you. We'll, 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 we'll see you shortly in Daria. Um, um, Daria is cool. Daria is cool. Daria is amazing, and it's quite the project, and it's it's quite the ambitious project. You know, we've talked about this before about how Saudi Arabia is in the discussion now, and so many things. You know, like the the sound storm and. And uh, you know the events that are ongoing, and the and the attraction of Ula Alula to you know global tourists, and and just the amazing things that it's become so much more destination. And all I can say is, you know, to make that point is Armani has this is they've agreed to build this third hotel. They have two other hotels in the world, one in Milan and one in Dubai. So, I mean, these are, you know, showcase uh, jet-setting cities, Milan and Dubai, and now you add Daria. It's just interesting how they're, they're sort of inserting themselves into the, that conversation. These are five, you know, six-star 
hotels, right? These are like right. hundreds and hundreds think, of dollars a night. I don't think I've deal. ever stayed in anything like it. So, well, that yeah. year for you, that's about to change um, now that we have this generous <laughs> new sponsor. Uh, check out this story from Architectural Digest. So it is cool. Um, it is. Includes some quotes from Jerry Inzarello, um, if I'm saying that right, who's the CEO of Daria, um, the sort of development. Uh, just, I mean, for those who don't know, Daria is the original village in Riyadh. Um, and is is, I mean, it, it looks like your sort of stereotypical uh, view of an old Arabian city. I mean, it's, you know, beige and sandy, but it is authentic as as anything else I've ever seen in my life. And it's really breathtakingly beautiful. It is, it sort of like takes over your body when you're near it. Cause you're like, you feel like you stepped into the past. It's, it's just, is really, I mean, I can't, can't recommend anything higher enough. Yeah. It's just, if you're in Riyadh, go there. It's, you can drive there or take a cab there, go there and walk around. It's amazing. Absolutely. Soon, amazing. soon you'll be able to stay in Armani hotel, but yes, it does transport you. And, uh, and it, it, it's 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 a remarkable experience. There's also the old wadi there, which uh, has it sort of has this feeling like a like a jungle almost because it's so lush. It really is. It's just it's an amazing place. Richard, we actually flew a drone there for a bit, which was a lot of fun. Um, before drones were you know before drones a, we were cool. Get, yeah. yeah, exactly. Way way back, we had to get remember that we had to get special Ministry of Interior clearance to do those things. How could one forget about that? <laughs> um, a lot of fun. This was a lot of fun. Thank you to everybody for joining us today um, on the 966 episode 42. Um, again, reminder, you can follow us uh, anywhere you get your podcast, YouTube. Give us the rating. It helps us a lot. Um, this We don't we don't want you to pay anything. We don't. Uh, this is just uh, us talking, but that helps us keep this thing going. So we appreciate it. Um, great episode today, Richard. Thank you. Another good one, Lucian. Well done. Thank you.